Hi, I'm uh, Jerry Ciccaritti. I'm the uh, co-writer, co-producer, and sole director of uh, Psycho Girls. Before Psycho Girls, I was uh, one of the original Toronto punk rockers. <laughs> <laughs> Back from the old days, uh, I grew up with an interest in uh, in uh, all the usual things that uh, generation. Um, famous monsters of filmland, uh, of underground music, comic books, things like that. My original desire in life was to be a comic book artist or an illustrator of some kind. And um, when I was fourteen years old, it became a passion for uh, making movies. I've been working up a sweat, and I can see you've got a ways to go. Where do Psycho Girls come about? Well, that's a bit of a long answer. I had formed, uh, in my uh, early 20s, a company called uh, Light Show Communications with uh, three friends of mine, Robert Bergman, Michael Bachner, and uh, Peter Baboris. The idea was we all wanted to be directors, and we all wanted to make movies. But we knew how to make movies, we thought, but we didn't know how to handle money, talk to banks, talk to business people, whatever. So we thought, let's form a little company for a few years and just make little commercials and advertising and promotional films. Learn how to deal with uh, uh, everybody. And uh, then when we're ready, we'll do a movie. And so we thought I, uh, we'd give ourselves like five or six years to really set the business up. Well, what happened was after the first year, uh, we were successful, by the way, we were making some money. We had an office and fancy furniture and everything. After the first year, we got eager and we wrote a, uh, a, a horror movie called Night Screams. And while Robert and uh, Peter ran the company in Toronto, Michael Bachner and I uh, went down to LA and New York and did everything we could to raise money to make, uh, make uh, um, Night Screams. Didn't happen. Anyway, long story short, we wound up bankrupting the company. <laughs> Because we spent all this, all the little money we had trying to get Night Screams off the ground. We, uh, we were pursued by our, our, uh, our landlord. We had to sneak the office out in the middle of the night uh, downtown Toronto and move into this like rotting old house a couple blocks away uh, uh, where we lived, um, starving for another eight or nine months. Are you trying to tell me that's a there's a rational explanation for that? Literally one Friday when we were all sitting around uh, at our desks because we had bedrooms on the second floor and our desk on the on the, on the bottom floor, and uh, we were facing a desperate, dark, dark future. I actually had a moment of bizarre inspiration, and I slammed my foot, my my hand on the desk, and I said to Robert, "How much film do we have in the fridge right now?" And he said, about 10,000 feet. And I said, is that enough for a movie? And he said, no, the final film should be 10,000 feet. And if we shoot at two or three to one, we should have like 30,000 feet of film. And I said, this is Friday. I'm going to go home. I'm going to come on Monday with a script. We're going to shoot a movie in a week. And I'm going to write something that's going to take advantage of what we have in our hands. My sister had just bought a house. She hadn't moved in yet, so there was no furniture there. And I said, okay, I have a house that people can live in. And the, uh, the Lakeshore... Uh, a medical asylum had just been closed and it was empty and through some kind of connection, I think we had taken some pictures there, it was dark and dank and full of spider webs and old, old furniture and I thought, well, we have this place for free. They hadn't moved in to shoot the Police Academy movies yet. 
So it was cheap. And I need to kill a lot of people. So what I need to do is to take a lot of people from a house to an asylum and kill them. So I'm going to write something <laughs> that will be that. And I bashed off the first draft, like 80 or 90 pages. Over the weekend, brought it in on Monday, gave it to Michael. He and I were, I guess, the writers of the, of the group, uh, both with a passion for classic old hard-boiled dialogue and movies. And I said, here, do a dialogue pass of that. And we passed it back and forth throughout the week. And that was the, that was the impulse. That's where the movie actually came from. Everybody was given a creative opportunity. Uh, you want to be in the, in the camera department, but the union is not going to let you shoot a movie. We're going to let you pull focus, uh, lay dolly track, do whatever. You want to be uh, a special effects guy in the movie, and nobody will let you do that. We'll let you do it. So we put together everybody that way. Um, actually, it was a lot easier to shoot a horror movie in those days than it is, than it is today, uh, because everybody from actors to crew people to even people with locations to, to give you, everybody was a lot less savvy, a lot less hip to what movies were all about. So back then it just seemed like everyone's response was, oh, sure, that sounds like fun, sure. We need a bottle of wine. We don't need any more scotch. But babe, our friends like to drink. What if we run out? I'm very proud of the dialogue, as is, as is Michael Bachner. Like, uh, like, uh, like I said, we loved old movies. She came at me in section. War curves, then a scenic railway. Fred Astaire, the great thing. Our screenwriting idols back then were, uh, were writer-directors uh, um, like Billy Wilder, Preston Sturges, um, uh, people who put a lot of character in the dialogue and didn't just have dialogue that was serviceable to the, uh, to the plot. There had to be some wit, some spark to it. So we actually did put a lot of time into the, uh, the dialogue. I mean, the fact is, once you've written, you know, scene three, she's captured, taken into the back room and beheaded, that's pretty much the scene. So the real work has to go into what people say while it's all going on. Do you know how important it is to cooperate? Uh, the gore of the film actually was uh, was planned as I was writing it uh, that, that 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 first weekend. It's going to sound pretentious, but <clears throat> my my aesthetic bent sort of drove me uh, more than it should have. But I didn't want to just focus on on gore and violence and plot. To me, everything needs to have some kind of you know beauty to it, even a, even a low budget any horror movie. So I thought if the first half of the film is going to take place in the house, it should be more like Alfred Hitchcock. It should be shot like Alfred Hitchcock. It should be structured more about suspense, uh, more about compositions within the frame, more about pacing. And then the second half, once we get to the asylum and all those, those events, that's going to be like Pasolini's solo. That's going to be just wall-to-wall -wall gore. And in fact, some of the dialogue and the rituals from the second half were directly taken as homages to, uh, to, to, to Salo. So uh, I always felt that the film would, would, would have, have a lever in the middle and actually be turned from one movie into another movie. You'll catch your death of cold. <laughs> you know, Sam Raimi was our hero at the time because he was a guy who, I mean, I was like, what? 27, 28 when I made that movie, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, Sam was uh, either a year younger or a year older, but basically he was my age, and he was the guy who had made this fantastic movie five years before us. 
I mean, it's it really is Evil Dead, the first Evil Dead level special effects. I'm a writer, okay? I write for human beings. I write uh, for the soul. Uh, I don't write for a machine. John Haslett Cuff, who's ostensibly the, the narrator and hero of the thing, he was a journalist. He was uh, the neighbor in the apartment building I lived in. Um, and a really, really fun guy, really witty. And as a, as a journalist, he was tall with a square jaw and he looked like, he looked like Rock Hudson. He looked like a classic hero. So we thought, John, you wanna, you wanna, be, the, you wanna be the guy? And he said, sure, he'd done a little acting in high school. Well, you're not bad in the kitchen. Yeah, but I'm a lot better in bed. Oh, Doesn't mean I'm gonna fuck Decker Wilson just so he can have a good time. Uh, Dolly Mignaco and uh, Aggie Gallas, who were the two psycho girls of the titles, were uh, upcoming professional actors, old friends of mine. I had done a lot of theater work with them. Um, I asked them to do it, um, and they had fun, so they were real actors. Danny Zambilovich, uh, uh, the bald-headed guy with, uh, who has the big monologue at the, at the, at the dinner table, um, he was a playwright. A successful psychologist and the most belligerent bastard I ever met. Friend of mine, uh, who I, I was very comfortable in front of a camera, so I thought, I'll give, I'll give him a part. Frank Procopio, the, uh, the guy who, uh, who's killed in the barber's chair, was a high school friend who wanted to be a, a film producer. Uh, so I gave him a part. He's been my dentist for the last 20 years, by the way. Um, and uh, everybody, all the, other, uh, all the other parts were from open casting calls. Uh, we had in those days, you would go to Now Magazine and I, and I just put in an open casting call and people would show up. And so it was, it was a mix of, uh, a mix of things. Giorgio, Giorgio De Chico, who was the tall, skinny uh, assistant uh, with, the, with the eye patch, he was Toronto's poet laureate. It was a, a well-respected uh, priest. Sorry, he was a well-respected poet uh, with many books published who later became a priest. And uh, Michael Miranda, who played the, young, the small barber with the, with the mustache, he went to the same high school that I did. He was the same generation as my sister, so he, my younger sister. So I knew him as the guy who hung out with my, with my sisters. And I hadn't seen him for many years. And one night I was walking down Young Street with a friend and Michael suddenly comes running around the corner in shorts, all sweaty. And I'm like, what are you, what are you doing? And he told me that he was a student at Ryerson around the corner. And he was, uh, he was uh, in the acting department. And I said, acting department? I'm shooting a movie in a week. You want to be in it? And he said, yeah. I said, great. <laughs> and that led to a years-long friendship. And of course, he starred in the two great friendship movies I did afterwards. Robert and I had known each other since we were 16 years old. And Robert and I uh, knew that uh, we had to plan everything. So essentially every shot was storyboarded. Uh, I would draw everything and we would sit down and go through the script meticulously and, uh, and plan the shots and how long the shots uh, should be. Uh, um, uh, because we, we, we knew when can we, when can we afford to bring in a, a dolly or a wheelchair or something like that. So as I recall, it actually was, was very simple. Uh, we get to the set uh, and listen, don't forget, the cast were all young, and they were either either young actors or they were non-actors. So nobody showed up saying, "You know, I'd rather start at the window and come over here." You know, I, I, I can I do this? And people just came in and looked at me and said, "What do we do?" And I would say, "You start at the window, you come over here, you sit down, and then you're going to come in and like stab them with a the knife." And I'll say, "Okay." So the blocking happened very quickly, and then we would light it and do a couple of takes and move on. It was actually very very smooth. I wish I could say there were traumatic uh, difficulties, but it was, uh, it was fun. We were halfway through cutting the movie when our, my, my partner, Michael Bachner, his father was a retired film distributor. 
Marty Bachner. I want to say that name because he's a, he's a wonderful, wonderful guy. Uh, uh, a great, great distributor, a real old school guy. He was a guy who first brought in uh, John Cassavetti's movies to Canada when nobody else would, would touch them. A great, great guy. Anyway, he was retired at the time. And he said, listen, I'm going to LA to visit some friends. Why don't you give me a, <clears throat> give me a VHS of the movie and I'll see if I can interest anybody in it. So he said, great. So we made a dub of the of the of the movie. And here's how we did it in 1986 or 1985. Because we were cutting the movie on a flatbed, on a steam bag, where you have one reel of film and two reels of sound tape in a small, wobbly screen with a little circular speaker over here to the side. We put a video camera on stand and zoomed in on the screen, and I held the microphone over the little crappy speaker. And we played the cut. And that was the VHS tape that Marty took to LA. And then two days later, we were sitting around the office. Robert was doing some cutting. Peter and Michael and I were, were, were chatting. And the phone, my phone rang on the desk and I picked it up. And it was Marty Bachner saying, okay, I'm sitting here in the office of uh, Canon Films in front of uh, Menachem Golan and Yaron Globus. They just saw the movie. They love it. They want to buy it. So... Canon had one stipulation. They, 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 they liked how the Hitchcock first half worked, but they wanted some gore. So they said, you got to go back and add one more scene. You got to kill somebody in the first five minutes. So we said, sure, but we killed everybody. And then we remembered, ah, Dr. Hippocampus. <laughs> Let's kill him. So we called him up and, uh, and, and we wrote a quick scene and we shot him again. That's why the film opens up. <laughs> They want, they, want every, they want sex, they want violence, they want gore, let's throw everything into it. So let's say it's two years later and he's, he's, a, he's a junkie, he's got prostitutes, there's booze, there's pills, there's sex, and I'm gonna cut off his head and skin him. <laughs> uh, but you gotta remember in the, in the, in the early 80s, uh, uh, um, it's really just VHS still, right? And there's no internet. Uh, so the world is not really aware of movies. And, and, and genre fans are not really aware of genre fans, uh, 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 genre movie making in the, way, in, the way they are, in the way they are today. So you just made a movie. I mean, today, if you're in your 20s and you want to make a slasher movie, you've got 40 years of those that you've grown up with and your parents have shown you these movies on DVD or streaming or, or, or whatever. So you know what the rules are and you also know how you want to deviate from them. But you're also screwed by the fact that there's been slasher movies and then there's been slasher movies that deviate from slasher movies, tongue-in-cheek. And then there's been movies that, that try to go back as, as homages to the original. In other words, we've been bouncing back and forth for, for 25 years. In 1986, there wasn't, there wasn't that stuff. You just, you just made a movie. Um, and aside from knowing that, well, I, got, I think I got to deliver a certain amount of sex and violence and, and gore... Where is this movie coming from? Well, the movie is coming from all those things that I listed at the beginning. I'm a punk rock guy who knew who knew uh, uh, Universal and Hammer horror films. When I was a little kid, I used to go and see the new Christopher Lee movie on the screen. So that was in the back of my mind. Uh, uh, also, by the time I was in my 20s, I had been watching Godard movies and Truffaut movies and Fellini movies. So European art cinema was like 
pouring into my head uh, like the like like the floodgates, as well as looking at uh, uh, Stanley Kubrick movies and uh, and uh, the young you know the the first few movies by uh, young Martin Scorsese and Robert Altman and people like that. All this stuff was in my head about what movie should be should be about, and then you throw in uh, the fact that. That my first exposure to movies was in my uh, my uh, Catholic church basement after my uh, uh, hated Saturday afternoon catechism class. You'd have to go and have nuns and priests hit you over the head uh, uh, when you give them the wrong answers. But then afterwards, they'd bring it into the church basement and they'd show you a movie. And it was always a 60 millimeter print of a Martin and Lewis movie or a Jerry Lewis movie. So my 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 memory from from being you know eight nine ten eleven years old is being in a church ba basement smelling incense looking at statues of naked people with arrows sticking out of them on the walls and watching this thing called Technicolor where the colors were like completely not lifelike where Jerry Lewis was 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 doing stuff so all that stuff was in my head and in my heart telling me whatever movie you write is going to come from all this so that's why everything. Is 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 the way it is, and the, anything that's different is not because I'm trying to reinvent the form. I was just trying to make a movie. We got real people, you big jerk. We got real people. <laughs> <laughs> My best memory from set is probably the pizza improv moments, which I always joke about as being my pre-Tarantino Tarantino moment, and that. Uh, I'm very proud of because we were at work on the third day getting ready to shoot some other scene of slaughter when we got a phone call on the phone, on the 1988 cell phone, which was that big, um, from Darlene saying that she was stuck in traffic and she was going to be an hour late. And even though, like I said before, the film shoot was, was very smooth and it was very planned, every minute counted. So we had an hour. We had nothing to do, so I was worried. I got to shoot something. We need, we need, we need something. And as everybody sat there, I suddenly turned to Michael and to Giorgio, and and I said, "Do you know any movie quotes?" And Michael said, "Yeah, I know a few." And he threw off a couple. I said, "What about you, Giorgio?" And he said, "Well, I know a couple, not as many as you guys. You put some movie quotes." And I said, "Okay, we're gonna do we're gonna do a scene where you guys order pizza, and and you're gonna take 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 a break while you kill people, and you're gonna quiz each other with with, uh, with, with movie quotes." So I pulled out a paper and a pencil, and I said, "Go!" And I got down as many movie quotes as they knew. I didn't want them to memorize anything new; it would have been difficult for them to play it. So I I just pulled stuff that they had to hand. It's wrote a couple of my own, and then um, so we wrote the scene where uh, within 15 minutes I was the pizza guy because we didn't have that that that, that cast. Uh, um, so I came in, brought in some pizza, and the guy sat down, and they uh, partially improvised, partly what we had scrawled on a piece of paper, wrote that wrote that scene where we basically stopped the movie for five minutes to to make references to other movies. Uh, with a bunch of uh, with a bunch of quotes, and I think that's that was the most fun, exciting part. I had a dream. I had a dream about a nail cutting a prairie. I like Psycho Girls. I think we did a great job back then. We had a lot of fun, and I had I had to watch it again a couple of years ago to show it to some friends. And I remember thinking, like, that that's great. I don't think I could do that again, though. If you said, "Here's a camera in five days and a bunch of actors go." Uh, there's an innocence to it, which which is very nostalgic for me. Uh, uh, so yeah, so I do kind of get a kick out of it. Ah! <laughs>
What a mess. Uh, I did see Psycho Girls once in a theater on the big screen. It was the cast and crew screening as a final version of the, of the, of the movie uh, at the uh, Science Center. In those days, they had a, a, a screening room which you could book. Um, so we booked it, and every and all the cast and the crew came, and people brought their parents and their families and everything. And uh, I've never been this for years. My God, my parents came, <laughs> my three sisters and their boyfriends, and my parents came, and they sat there. And uh, afterwards, my at, at the party afterwards, my mother, uh, she was both shocked and proud. <laughs> She said she had to keep covering her eyes. My father, who's a really old-fashioned Italian guy, had to keep leaving the, leaving the cinema for a cigarette just because those guys always smoke. To him, that's how you watch the movie. You watch 10 minutes of it, go for a 15-minute smoke, and come back again. So he never had anything in it. Uh, but that was, the, that was the first and last time I saw the big screen. You thought you could get rid of me in this place. After Psycho Girls, I did the first Graveyard Shift movie about a year and a half later. Um, it's a big shot producer in Canada. His name is Robert Lantos. And I forget how Robert and I knew each other or knew of each other. We had met somehow uh, in, in the, in, in the, uh, the, the film circle in, in Toronto in, in those days. Two New York City-based stockbrokers who made a lot of money who wanted to take advantage of the exploding VHS market back then. Um, came to Toronto and they and they handled a lot of Robert's money. And they said, we would love to, we want to make a movie. We want to make a movie here in Toronto because we hear you can do it cheaply. Can you recommend anybody? And Robert said, oh, there's this kid. He just got this movie. Why don't you guys meet? And I think you can do something together. So they contacted me. We had lunch and uh, they asked me if I had anything. And I had just, ha I just happened to have finished the uh, Graveyard Chef script which was going to be our, our next uh, movie. So that's how, that's how that happened. That was the next thing we did. I write for human beings. I write uh, for the soul. We shot the film in five days because that's how much time we had the hospital facility for, for five days. After that, they were going to ask us for money. And you know, not counting six months later, the one-day shoot of uh, Killing Dr. Hippocampus. Um, it didn't seem like five days was a little or a lot because we didn't we didn't we didn't know. Um, uh, we just thought, oh, we'll shoot fifteen pages a day, five days. You do the math; it, it means this. Uh, then when we started shooting, you realize, oh, they were long days. They weren't like eight or nine hour days. They were like fifteen, sixteen days. We were exhausted, and the film was shot more or less chronologically. So when the uh, John Cuff character is, is is killed by his wife. I hope you're watching this after you've seen the movie. When he's killed by his wife and she's wandering around outside the, uh, the asylum and we had the fisheye lens pan up to the sky. That was the last thing we shot. And it was a very emotional thing. I think we all broke down and cried. I know I, I, know I did. It was very, very emotional from, from both uh, uh, filming the movie and just the sheer exhaustion of nonstop over those, uh, over those five, five days.
My name is Robert Bergman. I am, I guess, a former filmmaker. Filmmaker, uh, director, slash producer, slash cinematographer, editor, all that stuff at one time or another. Writer. Yes! Jerry Chagridi and I met in high school. We're from different high schools, and there was a summer program for uh, students that made little movies in Super 8 or whatever. So that's how I got to know him, along with another group of kids. And it became clear within this group of eight or ten people pretty quickly that uh, Jerry was the genius <laughs> in the group in terms of... Uh, his extensive knowledge of uh, literature and mythology and meanings in movies. He could explain any movie and what was going on in it. And I, on the other hand, knew all the technical stuff, like way beyond anyway, any high school kid would know. And so a lot of the projects we did at that time, Jerry ended up directing and I ended up shooting and everyone else would, would help. And it just sort of like fell together that way. So we've been good friends since that time. And, you know, when I met Jerry, uh, even in that first year, I thought, you know what, I think this guy's going to be uh, the next Martin Scorsese or something like that. Because we could go out as a group and watch uh, some art film from Europe and we're all baffled by it. And he would sit us down and explain to us this movie, whatever it was, maybe a Fellini film, maybe a Truffaut film or whatever. And he would... Uh, dissect it and, and tell us all the hidden meanings and the use of color and the stuff like that. And we go, well, yeah, you're right. Yeah, it makes sense now. So uh, skipping ahead, I think it took literally 10 years of all kinds of different things before the circumstances arose that resulted in making our first feature film, which was Psycho Girls. Your first bestseller should be made into a movie. Well, now you finally have your first bestseller, and they're offering you a movie. A 3D movie. We uh, both worked on various, just like commercial things, various odds and ends, different jobs. And we formed a company called Light Show Communications and made TV commercials and industrial promo films and stuff like that. And didn't, weren't really successful at that. And we got really broke and we had to leave our office. We owed a lot of money to the bank. And so our other partner at the time, Mr. Bachner, we just said, we're gonna make a feature film. I'm gonna raise some money and we're gonna make some kind of film. We're just gonna write a script quickly. I had nothing to do with the script or ideas behind Psycho Girls. Those two guys just conjured it up as a kind of way to do something. It centered around the location they had found, which was an old insane asylum. And it could be uh, used for shooting in very cheaply. You got people? Mm -hmm. You got real people? Real people. So they came up with this idea. And when I read the script at the time, I was like, what are we doing? <laughs> because the thing was, you know, Jerry and I were always going to make art films, right? This is, this is the thing. I was never interested in genre films, really. I would never watch horror films and stuff. Very rarely. It was just not an, I don't know if that's what you want to hear, but 
It wasn't a natural interest of mine, but the thing is, Jerry said, oh no, this is an art film. I said, how's it an art film? And he'd start to explain that. <laughs> the deep psychological reasons why horror films are so important, you know. The look is completely organic and spontaneous out of the circumstances. There was no real production design that went on much. We were flying by the seat of our pants. It's two weeks of shooting, nonstop. And the one thing that I splurged a bit of money on was uh, uh, one boom arm called an Alamac, which is a relatively small boom arm, but you could carry it into a place, set it up, and actually use it to do kind of like short dolly shots and like little boom shots and stuff. So that was used a lot just to just not get all those like just static shots happening. Um, film stock, I think we use a lot of short ends. And you know what happens there? You don't know if the film's been sitting around in the sun. And I know that some of it's kind of grainy, maybe. So <laughs> you might look at the film and go, how'd they get that cool grain effect? How long did they discuss getting that? No, it just happened. <laughs> when you're in a rush shooting, you know, you bounce a light off the wall here. You just quickly move the light over here and you just start shooting. And so just working off instinct as to whether it'll look okay at the end of the day. The dynamic on and off set. Well, I think there is a history of having discussed many things over many years, different aspects of movies, how different filmmakers sort of came up with approaches to movies, how they shot them, how they directed them. So there's, there's a lot of discussion that went on that was not specific to the film over the years. So we didn't really have to talk too much uh, sometimes he's said very specifically he wanted things shot in a certain way. I know there was a kind of a reference to Hitchcock a couple of times. So there were these uh, odd shots where he wanted to start on something. The character would come in, move out, and then tilt up to something else and then come back. There's certain moments that are like that. There are other times where, okay, we're doing this thing now, and I'd have a handheld camera, and I'd just start shooting and moving just spontaneously. And as I said, we were uh, working on four hours sleep a night and you're just buzzed and you're just going. And you're relying on things you talked about before um, a lot and hoping it'll work out. Because of the location we were mostly shooting in, it wasn't that difficult to go from spot to spot. For example, uh, okay, so one thing that I dealt with as a cinematographer was that we needed to shoot an exterior of a house for a scene of somebody going in and out. And it's got to be daytime. And we're there at three o'clock in the morning. So I basically just got the biggest light I could get, make it look like sunlight, and then put two lights on the sides of the camera to fill all the shadows so it looks like ambient light. I smelled something strange and at first said no thanks. And I made that up on the spot with a few lights. And uh, so that, that was a diff that's just the kind of thing you have to, on the fly, try and uh, solve, you know. Guys, what the fuck are you doing? That tone is something that I was just shooting and seeing happen in front of me, right? So that's something that's in the script, the actors, whatever Jerry was working on with them in the background. That's where that comes from, yeah. I think something like this with a bit of a tongue-in-cheek 
quality about it, sort of softens some of the gruesomeness in it. Best memory was the, the end of the last day of shooting where we shot for perhaps 24 hours straight because it was the last day in the middle of the night and it's the end scene where the character Rose is uh, has gone nuts and is chopping up her husband, if I remember correctly, who's who. And we were, the, we were all delirious and, and I think she was the character there for a while. Uh, he has uh, a gift of inspiring those that work with him or do anything creative with him to do the best that they can and be inspired to uh, want to add to the project that is, that is his. And this is what a director is supposed to do. And he's particularly good at it. And he will engage with you on whatever level or sort of angle that fits you, right? So he's not going to get into deep metaphysical analysis with anyone unless he thinks that will help help them figure out what they want to do. So some, some actors, for example, do want that. Others just say, what are my lines? You want me happy, mad? What do you want? Let's, you know, and he's really good at reading different actors and how they respond to direction. There was no distributor. The film was finished. And uh, Michael Bachner's uh, father was in distribution, Marty Bachner. And I think through him, there was a contact with Canon, who said, okay, we'll look at the film. <laughs> and I think it was pretty much finished by then, or maybe close to finished. I don't remember the chronology exactly. Editing was, um, I enjoy editing. It's, it's, it's a more relaxed process. I mean, you work long days. I don't have a total clear memory of what the editing room was like, but Often Jerry was there, obviously, and we would work together and review stuff, and then he'd leave me alone for a few days, and I would just cut whatever I thought would be a good way of cutting the material, and then he'd come and look at it as, uh, again. I, th I remember it as a pretty straightforward process and a fun process. Unlike most movies, most movies you've got a sound editor and you've got a Foley artist and all that stuff, but I, I, I did everything all the way through. Uh, I split up the tracks for mixing and went out and recorded sound effects. Uh, actually, I think the three of us sometimes would record sound effects. I remember us getting uh, cleaver and melons and be chopping them and recording them. And um, <clears throat> some of the dialogue had to be redone, so we set up a little ADR studio in my bedroom in the house that we were working out of. You have, to, you have to imagine this is all done in one house. Our kitchen was the editing room. And I used my bedroom to set up a little uh, playback screen where an actor could come in and redo their lines. So we had a little toggle so they could watch the movie, hear their line, and then we'd record it. So no going and paying $100 an hour in a studio somewhere. We just sort of did everything on the fly. That's, that was our life, you know? It wasn't a job we went to for a certain number of hours. We just lived that life. And um, it led very quickly, fairly quickly, to our next film, which was Graveyard Shift, which we shot exactly a year after we shot Psycho Girls. And, uh, but that's another story for another day. I never liked the second act of this opera anyway. 
those two jobs, uh, cinematographer and editor, do not overlap. So uh, there was really no issue about being too difficult to do both. Now, I know that on, on, on features, there is an editor who's separate, who starts editing even while they're shooting, but we didn't do that. We just focused on shooting and then started post afterwards. I have no idea what happened to the film once everything was shipped off. I think we once randomly were sent a uh, newspaper ad from Florida somewhere where it was running in a drive-in theater when we went like, oh, look at that. It's playing in uh, Florida somewhere. Oh, okay. And, um, you know, I saw the film probably when we did the answer print at the lab. The answer print is your first print and you look at it and go, okay, that's now we're finally actually seeing the finished movie. I don't think I ever saw it after that. That's it. It was gone, shipped off. Hey, need a lift? I, I occasionally uh, think back to the films we made in the uh, sort of mid-80s, late-80s. They're, they're sort of distant, hazy memory, and uh, I just figure they've disappeared in the mists of time, but it's kind of interesting to hear that they're being revived. And it's made me think about trying to find out where the elements are of some of the other films that uh, Jerry and I have made, and... Uh, get them scanned properly and uh, it, it, just for posterity. But so much for time. All it does is pass you by anyway. I think a lot of filmmakers are like this. You finish a film, it's out of your hands. You're going, what are we doing next? And you totally focus on what you're going to do next. And that's what we did. And I, I don't think we, we never talked about it again after that. That was done. It's gone. Now, uh, what's the next one and how do we do it? How do we get it off the ground? And um, that's just the way it goes. I think everyone on that crew uh, was inspired to be part of it, even though we were, uh, you know, running by the seat of our pants, basically. Not knowing, sort of, on some level, didn't know what we were doing and creating moment by moment based on whatever script said whatever jerry said and we just get it in the can you know so you're when you watch that movie you have to realize you're watching something that uh, came together very quickly and, and semi-spontaneously there were no storyboards there were no long discussions there were no schematics there was no uh production design and and uh careful planning and testing and all this stuff just we just did it My name is Craig Richards, I'm a filmmaker, and I was the art director on Psycho Girls. Before I got the job to art direct for Psycho Girls, I was a student in my senior year at the Ontario College of Art studying photoelectric arts and film.
I've always wanted to be a filmmaker and, you know, the film story. I, you know, made little videos and Super 8 films and all that type of stuff, which just propelled me into, you know, into looking at, looking into that for my education. Um, I had a part-time job that, you know, that paid for school, working for a Black's Camera in downtown Toronto selling film and cameras. And it was just a natural thing that I pursued. So, don't be so smug, okay? I had a friend who was a classmate who, was, who worked on the film also. He was a the special effects makeup guy. And we were talking after a class one day towards the, you know, in the beginning of December of 1984. And he said, hey, what are you doing? I got, a friends, I got some friends that are making a movie. Um, and they're looking for art department people. And I said, great, let's, you know, it's Christmas. I'm just hanging out. So let's, uh, you know, let's go talk with them. So after school, we, they were, you know, lived about three blocks away from where the school was. So we walked over to their house and, you know, and Tim already had been hired and, you know, and knew the guys. So walked in and I started, you know, and I met Michael Bachner and Jerry Ciccariti. And I left with the script and ran home and did a breakdown, an art breakdown for them. They didn't really have any paperwork. And you know, outside of a quick props list that they had, um, so you know, I did it overnight and read the script three or four times and got on my typewriter, you know, and went to see him the next day and handed him the you know the the you know a new props list and a new art breakdown and all that type of stuff and I got the job as art director. Um, so I you know ran off to the discount store hardware store in downtown Toronto. And I got all the sundries that I needed, you know, cleaning supplies, paints, some paper. I don't think they're open anymore. It was called Honest Ed's, and it was like the first dollar store. But it was a four-story, you know, retail business, and they had everything, and, you know, it was just dirt cheap. So I, re I actually went around, looked at the paints, bought some spray paints. That was like $2 a can. Um, and then I went to the child section, and I bought all the child's paints. So they had little, uh, probably two pint tins of, you know, poster colors. And so I bought, you know, bikes out of the stock, every color that they had. And that's what we used to, you know, for the signage and, you know, change the backgrounds and to do touch-ups and all that kind of stuff was kids' paint. Tim Mogg and I, you know, would joke about it while, while we were shooting that it was our 12 days of Christmas film school. It was both of our fil you know, first films or, you know, that we had both worked on. And you know, we shot for 10 to 12 days, something like that. So that was our running joke throughout the piece is that you know, we were going to the 12 days of film school. Isn't Thank that you. Nice. I hope you like it. Well, I, you know, I, I read it two or three times before I started doing the breakdown. You know, the first time was just a straight read. The second time was a read with, you know, with markers, and I and I marked up the script. Um, the third time was a read while I, you know, was typing out the uh, breakdown, and I loved it. It it had a simplicity to it, meaning there wasn't a lot of, you know, I get scripts nowadays. It wasn't a lot of action. I get scripts nowadays, and it's seven steps to the door and that type of stuff. This was just the action, and the dialogue actually told the story. And that's a little different than scripts I see today where it's kind of half of the actions telling the story while the dialogue's also supporting that.
But on this one, definitely the story came through the dialogue and not so much as through the action. And I enjoy reading a script like that because it le you know, leads a little bit to everybody's imagination on you know, how are we going to do this, how are we going to put this together, and you know, how will this cut together. Oh, you might as well relax. <laughs> we had a lot more blood and gore throughout the movie than the video release has now. It was, a lot of it, was, it seemed to be cut out of the video release. When it was, you know, it went to LA and to get mastered and for mass produced. And I, I think they, you know, they lowered the rating what it would have been a little bit. I think they made it more video store friendly because that's what we were doing at the time. And that we, you know, we did for many years in Toronto is we made low budget movies that filled the video shelves across North America. There was a huge demand in video stores for content. And part of that content we made, you know, with two nickels in Toronto. We shot right before Christmas, and that year in Toronto, that start of winter, had no snow. It was, it was one of those odd late winters. So by the time we got there, everything, and everything, the floor of the fauna, it was all brown. You know, the leaves were gone, the trees were brown, the grass was dead. And there was just an overall earth tone feeling in the air. You know, we didn't have any money to fight that with great big colors and, you know, large things that would carry a, you know, carry a scene. So I, you know, so I palleted out, you know, a whole bunch of earth tones from, you know, tan, from, you know, various different types of, you know, colors and, and, and hues of tan all the way into the, the dark browns. And a lot of the paint that I bought, you know, the child's poster paint, was of the browns and the yellows and, you know, and the greens. And we mixed those together. And then once we got to the asylum, which is where we shot the majority of the film, that was, you know, a brick exterior. And then everything inside was institutional tan, light browns, a gray, a gray terrazzo floor. And it just, you know, and so it lent to that, you know, the, that range of earth tones. So we just carried it throughout the piece. And we let the, the colors and, and the brightness be carried by the actors, while the backgrounds and overall colors, you know, were just of the palette of earth tones. And then, and then of course, you know, you, you add, you know, you take that palette and then you add the film stock that we were using, which was the last Kodak film stock before the Vision T started. So it was already tuned for flesh tones and earth tones and that type of stuff more than the vibrant colors that you found in the next film stock of the 90s, you know, of the Vision, the first generation of Vision stock. And our lenses were, you know, were some TV lenses. They, we didn't have a set of balance. Zeus Zeiss lenses by any means. And, and the, uh, the 16 millimeter lenses that we used also had a bit of compression in them like all six, like shooting in 16 does. So when you put all those things together, the film stock, the colors we chose, the overall environment of the place, you end up with, you know, which, uh, you know, sort of a, a dysfunctional color set that you don't see in a lot of movies because they want to fill the spectrum. And we were happy with the earth tones 
And I think that, you know, brought the focus in on the actors a little more. You know, not to say that every set looked the same, not, not you know, a true, you know, analogy by any means, but it worked out for this movie and, you know, and the size and scale, it worked excellently. We had mismatched quartz lights and so they're already giving out who knows what color temperature within a range of, you know, of quartz. So, you know, it, it worked out quite well. And I think the film, even though it's earth tones and it sounds drab, it's quite vibrant. Of course, I was working in the convergence years between HD, you know, from film to HD, and that was always our problem. And even Panavision made a special set of lenses for their Sony partnership for the first F700, I think it was, or their F-series anyway, when Panavision and, and Sony partnered. And those lenses were, you know, were, you know, had a, had a defocus type coating on them, you know, to first the color shift between video and film. And the film one was, you know, Panavision lenses always had a color coating on them to bring out some of the colors that Kodak, you know, had in the way that they made the emulsion on the film. So, you know, they actually had to tone that down because they were just getting just an incredibly sharp image that was unnatural. You know, now it's kind of funny that you have to do all this work to go back to, you know, again, try to make it look like a film. You know, all the things we've talked about, the palette of the movie, the lenses, the film stock, and the wardrobe colors and all that kind of stuff. It wasn't, of that period, it was just what you would think would be drab, but because it all worked together so well, you know, it became exciting, but it was a little off. It just, something in your mind, you know, stayed with it. And then, of course, that 16 millimeter compression and, you know, all those things combined gave it a visual that, you know, you knew something wasn't quite, something was going on, something's not quite right here because it didn't look like the sound of music. Uh, that's, uh, that's James Cagney in anything at all. <laughs> Jerry knew what he wanted, you know, him and Michael Bachner were, you know, they found the locations, it matched the script quite well. Anything we brought to it was within the palette that we had all discussed to work in. And Jerry's just a brilliant creative collaborator. Um, even at that age, I, you know, I noticed it. And it's, you know, it was a very impressive thing to watch. For a first time director, you know, he had chops and he had experience beyond his years. And that made it easy for everyone. Just say something. No. <laughs> we spent a lot of time with rehearsing. Jerry came from a theater background. He had worked in theater for a while. You know, we played in the middle of our sets like it was a theater piece, you know, the talent. And Jerry rehearsed and rehearsed options and rehearsed, you know, rehearsed this angle and that angle. So when it came time to turn the camera on, everybody was pretty well versed in what his expectations were. And so, you know, we've shot once, twice. I definitely never shot anything more than three times. And I, you know, really can't think of, you know, it was a long time ago, but I really can't think of us ever, you know, getting caught in a next, let's do it again, which happens on a lot of the big, you know, the big budget shows that I've worked on where, you know, it almost gets them to be a rut. And they just keep burning, we just keep burning through film until we get it versus stepping back. 
And because of the rehearsals up front and, you know, the work that Jerry did with the actors, we, you know, we just, you know, turned the camera on, knocked it out, moved on to the next. And remember, we mean, you know, in that, in that era, the, you know, the, the money at that time, then it's back home. The movie's back home. You don't have the expenses of, of, of location and crew and all that type of stuff. So, you know, the editing is kind of centralized. It's in a building. In studio, that's why they have, you know, big studio buildings, not the studio shooting, the post buildings. Right, right. You know, because they got a staff and a crew, and so they'll burn through the money trying to get it done at the best way possible without reshooting and without having to go through those expenses. So, you know, they keep the, the ratios always, you know, been pretty high. The location that we shot the majority of it in the, was the actual true asylum. It was built in the 20s, you know, east, west of Toronto, you know, what was probably the woods at the time, right on Lake Ontario. But it was, you know, 14 miles from city core. And now it's almost, I mean, that's just Toronto proper. It's been, it's been demolished. But they, you know, they let it sit for, you know, they closed it in the, you know, late 70s. They let it sit for four or five years. And then they started opening up to, you know, to film companies. Because, you know, why, you know, why not? It's just sitting there. I think the first movie that I knew of that was shot there was Police Academy. All those exteriors was the entrance to the building that we worked under. It was the building where there were a series of five-story and four-story standalones in a horseshoe-type shape. And there was one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven buildings on what's probably five and a half, six acres. And then each one of those buildings were interconnected with tunnels so that none of the patients or staff had to go outside in the winter because it was cold because it was right on Lake Ontario. So that wind, you know, whips up there and, you know, and it's always 10 degrees or, you know, Working on a low-budget movie like this really, you know, set me up to be resourceful, which is a great trait to have when you're working on feature films, um, especially, again, with this location and the fact that we were the, you know, we were one of the second or third film to shoot at this complex in Toronto is a lot of things were, you know, I was, it was only a, few days between when I was hired and we started shooting. So there's a lot of things in that movie that I would have been, not been able to source. But, you know, we walked around and we checked out all locations and the buildings and, you know, the expensive medical gear and the beds and all that, they had been removed. But there was a lot of stuff still there. And a lot of the stuff that, wasn't, that we didn't plan on using that I found in you know scavenging the building itself like the rollout refrigerator tables where they would put the you know the dead bodies i just opened up a door one day and i'm like oh my gosh look what i just found attached to the wall and we built a scene around it um the examination tables you know they they had 12 position examination tables with stirrups and arm slings and all that kind of stuff tim mogg and i found it on a lunch break uh, walking around in the hallways looking at things, you know, bed pants, medical supplies, tables, bathtubs. You know, we have two bathtubs in the movie. We found and brought into our, you know, the fun room, 
you know, the room where we had the five sets, which was actually half basement down from the main entrance. When I say half, it was a half, half a floor, you know, stepped down and then all the tunnels fed off of that. And uh, you, you learn to be adaptive too. Like this is not exactly what you want, but I can easily, as a, you know, in the art department, I can easily source this and make it work and no one will know the difference than going out and buying a, you know, a $2,000 prop or, you know, something like that. So I've always kept those lessons with me and I've made my own low budget films and, you know, yeah, I can trace back to that film and those 12 days of Christmas film school. I mean, I already had film bug, but I think I stepped on a syringe at the medical facility in this because it got deep into my blood. And, you know, so I came out with a, you know, I came out with a already, you know, put together resume. You know, I art directed a feature film. And so I, you know, rode the opportunities that that gave into another feature film um, that I art directed that I was offered the night of the premiere of, of Psycho Girls. So two pro a, pro a producer, a director, and the unit production manager of a screwball comedy was coming to town, a movie called Recruits. And, you know, right after the movie was over, and we had an excellent, it was a beautiful premiere, it was at the Ontario Science Center in downtown Toronto with a huge, huge screen. Um, and it got a standing ovation, everybody that was there, and it was, you know, the audience, it was probably 400, if not 500 people. It was a huge, you know, auditorium. And uh, yeah, I got pulled aside by, you know, this producer and director, Raphael Zawinski was the director. Um, and I, you know, got, you know, we want to talk to you. And I got to say the total film brat thing, um, which, you know, I've heard a few other people say it, you know, in, in justice. I got to turn to the producer after they asked me to come by the office and talk to me, you know, and I said, you know, tomorrow. And I said, yeah, I can do that, but I can't see you till 11 because I have a class in the morning. So that's a total, absolute film, you know, film brat sentence to say. Um, and it didn't. so I went and saw them. And of course, I got, you know, I can't say of course, but I got that job too. But no less, all led from this, you know, 12 days of Christmas film school that, you know, that Tim and I, you know, joked about while we were making this. You have a lunch date with a Hollywood producer. What I think of the movie now, it was, it was one of the highlights of my career, to be quite honest. It set me up well for a 35-year career in the film industry, and that's a rarity anymore these days. Um, but it was a great, I only want to say training ground. I look at the, my education as my training ground, and I was just lucky enough to hit the ground running and keep that pace up till today. And so I'm more thankful to Light Show for, you know, getting this off the ground and, you know, hiring me and, you know, and taking it from there. And, you know, I got friends on the job and friends got me on the job and it's the circle of the film life. And it started for me, you know, 12 days of Christmas film school. And I don't want my name read by people wearing funny fucking cellophane glasses. I was a little, yeah, I was a little shocked to get an email back, you know, 30 days ago, say, asking if I was the Craig Richards from Psycho Girls. And I think I replied to him 
Like, yes, I am. I was the art director. What's up? I haven't talked about this movie in many, many years, was my re response to him. And that was true. I haven't, you know, you know, a lot of my, my friends, one I've lost contact with, Nick White, who was the gaffer, a friend I went to school with, and Tim Mogg, the special effects guy, has passed away um, in 2012, I believe. And, you know, so we don't, you know, we don't chat on the phone and, you know, make, you know, 12, day of film, 12 days of film school jokes anymore. Um, so it's, you know, I can't say it's out of mind, but it was definitely out of conversation um, that, that I have daily, weekly, or, you know, over the past, you know, 10 years at all. So I was shocked, you know, that it's getting another life. And I'm proud of it. And, you know, it gave me a, you know, it gave me a great long-term career. So, you know, it's a win-win for everybody. And I'm lucky if I don't cry. <laughs> I like happy ending. The story of Canada's film industry is a turbulent one, but especially in the early 1980s when the outlook for many directors was particularly uncertain. While the 1970s had seen an unprecedented production boom north of the border, it was just a few short years later that local filmmakers were suddenly struggling to get their projects off the ground. Made at a time when government funding for theatrical features was drying up and financial incentives for investors hit a record low, Jerry Chikoridi's Psycho Girls was one of a handful of Canadian regional productions that helped forge a new path for the country's youngest filmmakers. One of Canada's first horror films tailor-made for the VHS market, Psycho Girls showed that it was possible to succeed by catering to video rental stores and their insatiable need to line their shelves with new tapes, tempting viewers with lurid artwork and suggestive titles. With few other options at the time, Chikoridi and other up-and-coming Canadian filmmakers brought a new do-it-yourself attitude tailor-made for this home video era. Do it fast, do it cheap, and above all, make it gory. But even amongst the other Canadian genre films of this time, Psycho Girls stands out with its unique and witty approach to horror. Although Psycho Girls and other similar Canadian shockers helped drag Canada into the video era, the country's history of genre movie making was still relatively young at the time. It was the 1970s in which Canada's film industry really took off, thanks to increased levels of government funding as well as tax incentives that were meant to encourage private investment. For many, the tax breaks were just too good to ignore. From roughly 1974 to around 1982, successful business people, dentists, and lawyers were all racing to invest in film productions as a way to slash their tax bills. The result was a steady stream of Canadian-made schlock, sex comedies, horror pictures, sci-fi and disaster films, and wild exploitation fare like Gina, Ilsa, Tigress of Siberia, Cannibal Girls, and Mondo Nude. But by the time Chikoridi and his production partners started to consider feature films in the mid-1980s, the tax shelter era, as it has come to be known, was undeniably over. 
So what caused the government to change course? In addition to questionable financial schemes to take advantage of the shelters, there were increasing concerns over the kinds of films that were being made. The main criticism was that many of these films were just poor quality facsimiles of Hollywood fare, as opposed to uniquely Canadian stories as told by Canadians. And while some tax incentives still remained on the books in the years that followed, they were far lower than what was available during the previous decade, and as a result, production of Canadian genre films slowed down considerably. While some established directors were able to continue making genre films, including Bob Clark, David Cronenberg, Ivan Reitman, and William Fruitt, younger film industry hopefuls found the situation was far tougher. But the new difficulties in raising production financing didn't quite stop the more determined filmmakers of the time. In 1984, Toronto-based friends Jerry Ciccariti, Robert Bergman, and Michael Bachner looked for a way to launch their careers in Toronto by taking advantage of a new demand for movies on VHS and Beta. Recognizing that video rental stores were popping up in neighborhoods across the country, the enthusiastic trio were among the first Canadian filmmakers who decided to make a film specifically for the home video market. Shot over a few weeks at the end of 1984, Psycho Girls was intended as a pop art horror film, a campy tale of revenge that didn't exactly satirize horror movies, but instead took a smart and witty approach to the genre's most popular conventions. In fact, one of the aspects of the film that sets it apart from other Canadian films of its time is this streak of dark humor that effectively breaks up the more horrific scenes. We get a glimpse of this approach early on as a couple is served breakfast in bed by their young daughter. From the father's strange, over-the-top reaction, we're then taken to the kitchen where we're shown a box of eradicate poison, further signaling the film's gallows humor approach. But that, so to speak, is just the appetizer. The film is filled with similar comedic moments, from the hard-boiled film noir narration of pulp novel author Richard Foster, who we later discover is telling his tale from beyond the grave, to another scene in which two asylum inmates recite lines from classic Hollywood movies. But perhaps the most darkly comic moment is the dinner party itself, in which the party guests discuss the intricacies and functions of the mind while chowing down on actual human brains. Still, the sardonic tone of the film does appear to change once Victoria and the other inmates bring the Fosters and their dinner guests to the asylum for their sadistic entertainment. What's striking about this sequence, aside from the gorier moments, is how highly theatrical it is. The ceremony is surprisingly similar to a dramatic stage performance with makeup, costume changes, and even Victoria and her friends playing various roles like barbers and psychiatrists. With a victim selected, the torture and murder unfolds in what could be considered an act in a play broken up by short intermissions, with the Fosters and their friends tied up in chairs as a captive audience awaiting their own turn in the stage spotlight. It's kind of a maniacal twist on participatory theatre, which is especially interesting considering Chikoriti's own earlier ties to Toronto's theatre scene, but it also makes the film stand out from the slashers and monster movies that mostly define Canadian horror at the time. 
Instead, the film's Grand Guignol pretensions are perhaps most similar to an earlier tax shelter film, 1974's Seizure, a U.S. co-production that also was the debut feature by visiting American director Oliver Stone. In that film, a horror novelist has a house party invaded by three strange figures that appear to be characters from one of his books, and the trio terrorizes his family and friends. But aside from that Canadian example, Psycho Girls fits more closely alongside American grindhouse films of the previous decade, such as Joel M. Reed's Bloodsucking Freaks and 1977's Death Game, both of which incorporate a kind of theatrical artificiality into the scenes of horror. One aspect of Psycho Girls that does follow the general trend of Canadian horror cinema is its depiction of doctors and medical institutions. Horror, of course, has a long history of mad doctors, but this theme tends to get special treatment up north, where misguided doctors, medical experimentation, and treatments gone wrong are surprisingly common story elements. With most of the action taking place in the cheekily named Lakeview Asylum for Mental Disease, Psycho Girls appears to blame Victoria's murderous behavior directly on her mistreatment by mental health professionals. It's an idea that's not too far off from some of the films of David Cronenberg, including most obviously the twin gynecologists of Dead Ringers. But these kinds of harmful doctors can also be seen in Cronenberg's earlier films, including Oliver Reed's portrayal of Dr. Raglan in 1979's The Brood, who's fixated on advancing his psychoplasmics theory despite mutating side effects, And then there's 1975's Shivers, which features a similar obsessed doctor who creates a genetically engineered sexually transmitted parasite in a failed attempt to create a utopian society. And there are many others exploring a similar vein, including 1977's Rituals, which takes a slightly different approach. This film follows five doctors on vacation deep in the Canadian wilderness, where they find themselves attacked by a mysterious person who blames the medical profession for a botched surgery that has turned him into something less than human. Likewise, the Canadian-made 1981 slasher Happy Birthday to Me, which featured radical new brain surgery procedure gone wrong. And there are other Canadian films from the VHS era which touch on this subject as well, including The Brain, Blood Relations, Science Crazed, all the way up to more modern films like The Void and American Mary. Like Rituals, Psycho Girls is similarly focused on patient revenge, featuring the death and decapitation of Victoria's sleazy psychiatrist Dr. Hippocampus early on. Once we arrive in the asylum for the performance, Victoria dedicates a night to Dr. Sigmund Freud, whose poster hangs conspicuously in the background. Soon after, Victoria plays a scene with Dr. Wilson, a psychiatrist who is attending the Foster's dinner party, and in this case she switches roles so that she plays the psychiatrist and he her patient. But when the gagged Dr. Wilson doesn't answer Victoria's probing questions, she attacks him with a hypodermic needle, prescribes antidepressants, and even, eventually, looks inside the dead man's brains to determine if there's anything wrong. In this way, Psycho Girls becomes a grotesque parody of psychoanalysis, 
in which treatment not only can't help patients deal with their mental health issues, but ultimately views common treatments such as drugs and doctor-patient discussions as so detrimental that they can ultimately cause issues. Although Psycho Girls remains most interesting for the way it plays around with more common horror ideas and themes, it's probably more notorious for its scenes of blood and gore. If you're looking for ambitious practical effects work, there's plenty of it here. From executions to the brain buffet, a decapitation, a straight razor shave gone wrong, and even toenail torture, Psycho Girls packs a punch where it counts most. These scenes were mostly done by a Toronto effects artist, Tim Mogg. A former animator, Mogg established his company, The Nightmare Factory, in the 1980s and would go on to contribute to many Canadian film and TV productions through the 1980s and even into the early 1990s. Not only did he work on Chikoridi's next film, 1987's Graveyard Shift, but his work can also be seen in Death Wish 5, as well as on the Toronto-shot TV show Friday the 13th, the series. Though primarily intended to line video store shelves, Psycho Girls did play at least one hometown film festival date, alongside a handful of other Canadian films that also recognized the coming shift to the home video market. Toronto's B-Festival, organized by some local film critics, was launched in the fall of 1986 at the Big Bop, a popular Toronto music venue. The Bee Festival was held at the same time as the Toronto International Film Festival that year, then called the Festival of Festivals, and while there was no official connection between these two events, the press sometimes referred to the Bee Festival as the faithful teenage sidekick of TIFF, kind of an indirect precursor to TIFF's current Midnight Madness genre film program. Typical of the time, the Bee Festival featured several nights devoted to video projections of Plan 9 from Outer Space and 1930s exploitation films like Reefer Madness, but it also featured one night dedicated to Nightmares of the North in which Psycho Girls was screened alongside a pair of other Canadian-shot home video hopefuls. Those films were Fear Stalker, a shot-on-video slasher later released on VHS as City in Panic, and Splatter, Architects of Fear. As with Psycho Girls, Splatter featured extensive effects by Tim Mogg, some of which actually rival his work in Chikoridi's film. Interestingly, Splatter wasn't actually a narrative feature like Psycho Girls, but was instead presented as a behind-the-scenes documentary on the making of a horror film. But the film, supposedly featured in Splattered, didn't actually exist. The whole documentary angle was only conceived as a way to try and get the film's most explicit scenes past Ontario's censor board. The film, which is essentially a calling card for Mogg's effects work, was masquerading as an educational video that taught people how to create makeup effects. This approach actually proved to be ingenious since Splatter walked away from the board with a PG rating. Not so with Psycho Girls, whose scenes of torture and death immediately ran into issues with film boards, with some of the gorier scenes censored in certain markets, setting many viewers on the lookout for elusive uncut VHS versions. 
although some viewers may have felt ultimately disappointed with the cuts that tended to lessen the overall impact of Mog's effects, Psycho Girls remains an important Canadian horror film of the era for the way it helped spark a resurgence of Canadian genre film following the tax shelter era. And even though the Canadian government later further gutted the tax shelters at the end of the decade, many Canadian filmmakers were this time equipped to continue working in the straight-to-video world. North American video stores were soon flooded by other similar Canadian films, including Zombie Nightmare, Things, Beyond the Seventh Door, and Storm, among many others. Even bigger-budget Canadian films that played theatrically would go on to become well-loved home video classics, including the satanic panic-inspired The Gate and the creepy mannequin tale Pin, A Plastic Nightmare. But you can trace their success back to films like Psycho Girls. Ultimately, just as Victoria was mistreated by the medical practitioners of the Lakeview Asylum, Psycho Girls was largely spurned by Canada's film financing system, which tended to favor more artistic films than horror flicks. It's only fitting, then, that Canadian genre filmmakers would soon get their revenge, bypassing the traditional routes of more established directors and finding their own way into the hands of eager young viewers at the video stores not only in Canada, but in countries all over the world.